bisphosphonates and osteonecrosis of the jaw, irresponsible media hype, or a true risk for our patients? You are listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman. And joining me to discuss bisphosphonates and the risk for osteonecrosis of the jaw is Dr. John Carey, consultant physician in internal medicine and rheumatology and specialist in osteoporosis at Galway University Hospitals in Galway, Ireland. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Carey. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be asked to speak here today. Pleasure is ours. And as an internist, I'm certainly very aware of osteoporosis, but much less so with what osteonecrosis is. Can you give us some background on that? Sure. Osteonecrosis is something I think until very recently we were all unfamiliar with. But basically, it's a condition where we have general loss of bone tissue as a result of cell death, similar to necrosis in other tissues. And it has a predilection for long bones that we used to see with people on steroids or with lupus or other conditions. But more recently, it's been described in the jaw bones, i.e. the mandible and the maxilla. And although the definition is changing, a recent working definition has been submitted by the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research that this is an area of exposed affected bone that doesn't heal within eight weeks after being identified by a healthcare provider. When we do see it in the long bones, you mentioned it's often due to steroid use. And is it like an avascular necrosis that we might see at the hip? Exactly. So we've seen it in the past from radiation, from steroids, um, vascular necrosis following trauma, such as fractures of the hip or in our sickle cell patients, sickle cell anemia or lupus patients or people with thrombotic disorders where they lose the vascular supply to that bone. So eight weeks since uh, it's been identified that it does not heal. And then we have these agents that we use for osteoporosis, osteopenia, the bisphosphonates. Is there some reason to believe mechanistically that they would be related to osteonecrosis? There are three main mechanisms hypothesized, and I suppose it's only fair to say there are hypotheses at the moment. And the three mechanisms that have been put out there are that, one, these drugs cause oversuppression of bone turnover. Secondly, that they may have anti-angiogenic effects, which may be a problem for certain bones, particularly the jaw bones. And thirdly, that they may increase the risk of infections in certain tissues. Um, so firstly, to say they oversuppress bone is probably not an issue for osteoporosis because osteoporosis treatments, by and large, suppress bone back to premenopausal levels rather than overly or very aggressively suppress them when used at the usual doses. And we've actually had biopsies from adjacent bone at the maxilla and mandible in some patients who actually had osteonecrosis of the jaw, and there didn't appear to be suppression of bone turnover at those sites. The second issue is the anti-angiogenic issue, and that's probably one area where there is some evidence suggesting that there may be an effect, but these are in animal models, and how that translates into humans is unclear. I suppose when we see lots of osteoclasts, which we do in the rest of the mandibular maxilla in patients of osteonecrosis of the jaw, that would suggest there's very good vascular supply there because, as most people would be familiar with, osteoclasts come from monocytes, which actually come from your blood and fuse to form osteoclasts at the sites of bone turnover. And the final one is that they have an increased risk of infection or may suppress your immune system in certain bone tissues. Again, there's some research, but it's very preliminary and it's not very robust that these drugs actually impair your immune mechanism or healing mechanism at certain sites. 
more research is needed. But they're a hypothesis, and we don't have a good explanatory mechanism at this point in time. Is there some reason that any of those three mechanisms would be more likely to affect the jaw versus the long bones where we more often see the osteonecrosis? Traditionally, I suppose, we really haven't had a good handle on what normal bone turnover is in the jaw, except that this is an area where bone turnover is likely higher than in other cells or other uh, skeletal sites. Um, The vascular supply is certainly higher than in maybe other skeletal sites in those areas too, but again, the evidence that these drugs really affect those mechanisms is unclear at this time. I suppose the biggest area that really has thrown this issue up is the fact that there have been a lot of case reports and case series of osteonecrosis of the jaw in patients who've been on these medicines for a variety of reasons, and this hasn't been the case for other skeletal sites. So I suppose that's probably the best available evidence that is out there suggesting maybe there is a link to this particular skeletal site in patients who have been exposed to these medications. And what is the evidence now that we have that does link these two? I know when the concern first came out, it got a lot of media play here in the United States, and I had patients coming in wanting to get off of their medications or not wanting to start. Is there good evidence that suggests this is a real risk? I suppose when you say, is there good evidence, my answer to that would be no. And if we say, when we look at evidence, we should look at it best we can in a fair and unbiased manner. There is a lot of good evidence out there that patients who take these drugs, either in large numbers or for a long period of time, don't appear to have an increased risk of this disorder. However, there are a lot of case reports and case series out there suggesting patients who've been on these drugs get this disorder. So there seems to be a dichotomy between what we have for good evidence and then these reports that have gotten a lot of press and media coverage particularly from some of our dental colleagues who certainly have some valid concerns. This is a disorder that I certainly wouldn't want to have and I wouldn't want any of my patients to get because it's very difficult to treat and has a lot of morbidity if people get it. On the other hand, we have over several million people in North America on any of these drugs in any particular given year in the last few years and they're pretty effective for treating the bone and calcium conditions they're used to treat, yet we don't see lots and lots of patients from clinical trials or observational studies where they've looked at this carefully, getting this disorder. So there is a dichotomy in the literature between the good evidence, which doesn't suggest there's an increased risk, and then these smaller reports or case series, which may have referral bias and channeling biases and all the biases we would be concerned about in uncontrolled clinical studies um, that may account for why there's a higher incidence in certain areas or certain populations. Um, Association, as we know, implies association but does not imply cause. And we have to be careful before we assume association equals cause. And in some of the things, perhaps you can comment on the data behind these things, much more likely with intravenous use of bisphosphonates versus oral use. Is there any truth to that? Well, certainly most of the cases that have been reported have been in cancer patients. And I suppose it's worth stating at the outset that even before bisphosphonates were used for cancer patients, they had a several-fold increased risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw to begin with. And part of that is going back about 100 years when they started irradiating head and neck cancers, the first cases of radionecrosis, not just of the jaw, but also of the skull and vertebra and other bones started to show up several years after radiation therapy was used extensively around the turn of the 19th century. And later, when they combined radiation therapy with better regimens with chemotherapy, again, this issue began to surface. 
So this issue has been around for a long time for cancer patients. Now, with more modern chemotherapies, patients have an increased risk of infections of the jaw and the dental areas because oftentimes they have pancytopenias and they may even have uh, marrow transplants and be greatly increased risk of not just of usual but also of unusual infections of the jaw and dental areas. And probably in the last 10 to 15 years or so, some of these cancer patients are also receiving very high doses of intravenous bisphosphonates at much greater doses than we would use for other diseases of bone um, for longer periods. So sometimes these patients would get what we would give once a year to an osteoporosis patient every month or even higher doses occasionally. And there is a temporal relationship seen with these high doses, but whether that really reflects a dose-effect relationship from the bisphosphonates or a survivor bias because these patients didn't live that long before is unclear at this time. But we do see most of the cases in the literature have been presented um, in patients who've received high-dose chronic intravenous bisphosphonate therapy, not in patients on the usual doses for osteoporosis or Paget's disease of bone. So we don't have those good controlled prospective trials. And in these case reports, many of them have been in this type of patient, patient that has other reasons perhaps for osteonecrosis and being given these medicines at a much higher dose than what we might use in our osteoporosis patients. That's correct. And so perhaps patients have other risk factors and reasons to get osteonecrosis and standalone issues irrespective of whether they get bisphosphonates or not. And whether bisphosphonates modify or increase this risk remains unclear at this time. The flip side to what's out there from these case reports, I suppose, is what we see as bone physicians, where we have patients who've been on these drugs now sometimes for 20 years almost, and they've had multiple dental extractions and multiple jaw surgeries, and they've never had osteonecrosis of the jaw. And we don't see cases of osteonecrosis of the jaw in many, many patients who've had multiple dental procedures, which again is in somewhat discordance with what our dental colleagues are telling us, where they seem to say they see this all the time. We don't see this as bone physicians, and I haven't seen a single case in my practice now in over 10 years of prescribing bisphosphonates. And I've worked with physicians who were in the first bisphosphonate trial over 20 years ago and still have patients taking didronal, and they haven't seen a single case of osteonecrosis of the jaw in their practice, except the oncology patients who've been referred in because of the concerns about what to do now. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm discussing the risk for osteonecrosis of the jaw with the use of bisphosphonates with Dr. John Carey, consultant physician in internal medicine and rheumatology and specialist in osteoporosis at Galway University Hospitals in Galway, Ireland. Dr. Carey, some of the practices that I see sound like we don't need to necessarily follow. For instance, getting a dental exam before starting on an oral bisphosphonate for osteopenia. That's right. I think as physicians, we would always encourage our patients to take care of their oral health as they would with any other part of their body. But I don't think we need to be overly cautious about patients starting um, usual doses of oral bisphosphonates for osteoporosis or osteopenia. I think dental surgery and dental extractions can certainly, in my experience, be performed very well and very safely uh, with good clinical practice without any increased risk. I do think it's impractical to consider every patient getting an extra dental evaluation at significant cost where there are over 20 million people annually on these oral drugs in North America and there's about 60,000 in Ireland where we have a population of 4 million. It's impractical to say that everybody would have an oral exam and even if they had one, we don't even know that that oral exam is actually going to find anything that's going to be of significance. 
and we don't even know that we have anything that's definitely going to prevent this condition from developing. So I think we have to balance if there is a very rare risk with the best available evidence, which suggests there isn't an increased risk and a very real increase in cost and worry without any evidence that any of this is going to prevent a single case of osteonecrosis of the jaw. So I don't think patients need to go for a pre-treatment screening examination at this point in time. Now, the caveat there would be it certainly looks like from the literature that oncology patients probably should have whatever dental work they need done prior to starting their chemotherapy and our high-dose intravenous bisphosphonates until we have better evidence about what the causes definitely are and how we might manage it. But for the average everyday patient taking this for their osteoporosis, that doesn't appear to be the case right now. And I had a dentist, based on what you're saying and the mechanism of these medicines, this doesn't make any sense to me, but I had a dentist suggest that a patient on a bisphosphonate take a hiatus for several weeks prior to an extraction. That should not be necessary. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't, and it doesn't make sense on two fronts. Um, It doesn't make sense because we know these drugs have a very long half-life in bone, and these drugs may last in the body for several years even after patients stop taking them. And it doesn't make sense, on the other hand, because if there is a risk, it appears to be very, very small at best. The risk would certainly be a lot less than their chances of having a fracture or dying following that fracture. So I think when we put it in perspective with their other risks, the best available evidence would suggest that that's not something we should be overly concerned about. Now, I would say that when I started um, seeing dentists with some of these concerns in the last few years and they brought in all the information they heard at meetings, and you present them the evidence that's actually out there from clinical trials and observational studies, they were quite surprised that we actually don't see this condition at all in osteoporosis. And I certainly, given the intravenous bisphosphonates and oral bisphosphonates to several dentists in the last few years, and they certainly have been very happy with the evidence when it's presented to them in an unbiased fashion, that we just don't see this in our practice. And when they're actually get the unbiased information, understand the risk is very small. They seem very comfortable taking the medicine if there's a good clinical indication for it. I would very much like to thank Dr. John Carey from Galway University Hospitals in Ireland for discussing with us so eloquently the lack of risk between use of bisphosphonates and the development of osteonecrosis of the jaw. He has certainly reassured me and has pointed out how the risk for osteonecrosis of the jaw is indeed low, with the exception of their use in cancer patients when they're often used for prolonged periods and at very high doses. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio and XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.